0: Welcome to the Science of Success, introducing your host, Matt Bodner.
2: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss why it's so important to study and understand psychology if you want to master any aspect of life. We look at the evolutionary science behind how your brain often plays tricks on you. We share a simple and impactful model from psychology for dealing with stressful and tough situations. And we discuss the dangerous illusion of the quest for certainty and how you should actively embrace taking risks in your life with our guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I'm gonna tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called how to create time for what matters most even when you're really busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, My email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we asked, how do you make decisions that let you see beyond your everyday inbox, busy work, and the demands of others? We uncovered that there are huge mismatches between how you think you spend your time and how you actually spend it. We shared how you can deal with the fear and the reality of disappointing other people and not meeting their expectations. And we shared one simple strategy in 30 minutes that can help you reclaim control of your time with our guest, Laura Vanderkam. If you wanna finally take control of your time, listen to our previous episode. Now, for our interview with Daniel. Today, we have another exciting guest back on the show, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of the mind and the markets. His most recent book, The Behavioral Investor, provides an expert look at the useful mix of psychology and investment science. His work has appeared in the Huffington Post, Risk Management Magazine, as well as Wealthmanagement.com and Investment News. Daniel, welcome back to the Science of
3: Success. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having a repeat guest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you back on the show. There's some really great examples and research studies and things you pull out in the book. And so we thought it'd be a great opportunity to not only look at a lot of these concepts in the context of the the financial markets, but also really expound upon them even more broadly and share these ideas with the listeners. And to begin, one of the themes or kind of core ideas that you begin the book with is this notion that in order to understand how the capital markets work, uh, or in, in layman's terms, how the stock market or the financial markets work, we have to understand human nature. Tell me about that idea.
3: Well, so the idea is that uh, capital markets, stock markets are human creations that are driven up and down by humans. And so it's only as we understand human behavior that we truly understand capital markets. I think a lot of novices in the stock market will say, oh, you know, the way that this works is I look for good companies and I, and I buy them and then I'll do well. Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. And there's a, there's a whole lot of irrationality. There's a, a ton of psychology and human nature that's baked into markets. So that's the thing that makes them frustrating, but that's also the thing that makes them exciting for people like me is it's not just accounting, right? It's actually a canvas on which we're painting the human struggle, and that is what makes it so fascinating for me.
2: I think you could even go one step further and extrapolate this idea. Since almost everything we do is largely a function of human interaction, whether it's business, whether it's life, the world at large, The reality is that in order to understand almost anything, especially how the world works, we have to begin with the understanding of human behavior and the human mind.
3: Well, I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that I love to joke about is how being a psychologist is so great because we can co-opt every other discipline effectively, right? You know, even when I'm watching the Super Bowl and, and yawning, as was the case this week, but, you know, even as I'm watching the Super Bowl, all of this is just psychology. It's all the same things we see in capital markets. It's human behavior. It's momentum. It's coming back from defeat. It's keeping your head held high. So absolutely Almost anything you would would ever encounter has human nature as sort of the bottom most turtle. And I give this example uh, in the book of how we used to think that atoms, we had this notion of atoms early on, but we used to think that they looked like little solar systems, basically. And we thought everything was sort of a fractal that was solar systems all the way down. Everything was just sort of a little solar system within a larger system uh, within a larger system and it's only as we understood sort of the the fundamental parts of an atom that we were able to harness atomic power to either fuel a city or or demolish a city and I say the same thing about human nature. It's only as we understand that, that human beings are the thing that's at the very bottom of this, and we can understand a handful of the tendencies to, to which we are most prone, that we're able to create systems and processes that help, uh, help us master markets and help us master ourselves. So I think a, a correct understanding of human behavior is a prerequisite, as you said, to almost any successful endeavor.
2: And that's such a great point, and in many ways, really the reason why we embarked many years ago to to begin and start the science of success, to to follow the same quest that you've applied within the discipline of, of finance, but much more broadly of how do we understand the human mind and how do we look at specific instances of when our our brains might malfunction or short circuit and learn from those mistakes or those biases and how they can impact our behavior.
3: Well, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, you know, your podcast, your show is all about evidence-based growth. And I think that's such a powerful niche because in the sort of human progress, personal development, leadership space, there's so much voodoo and there's so much sort of bad thinking and quote-unquote common sense that it's refreshing to see someone like you doing what you're doing. I'm trying to bring that same thing to markets. And the reason that I wrote this book, relatively hot on the heels of another book, is because I was going to conferences and hearing all this sort of folk wisdom uh, passed down from trading coaches and you know, different people who were trying to make uh, help traders and hedge fund folks and, and asset managers make better decisions and you know knowing the research as i did i knew that some of what they were saying was inconsistent with the research so i want us to be evidence based investors uh, just the same way that you're about evidence based growth and i think the evidence based approach is sometimes counterintuitive it's almost always harder to swallow because it usually asks more of us but i think it's ultimately more fulfilling and has more power to get you where you're going a great
2: insight and you know, there's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is this idea that there's a number of concepts, mental models, et cetera, throughout the book that apply to the financial markets. But obviously, everybody who's who's listening here isn't necessarily a trader or someone involved in that world. And yet, I think there's some really fruitful insights that we can pull out of them. And one of them, just, just to dig a little bit deeper, was one of the early ideas you talk about in the book is this idea of how humans... Or how the brain in general, as we've been talking about, is this thing that evolved over you know, thousands, millions of years, and yet it's been thrown into modern society, which has developed in the last couple hundred years. And there's all kinds of areas and places where the brain short circuits or misfires and causes us to do something that feels right and seems like it's a good idea, but ultimately is a really bad decision.
3: Yeah, I think one of the most important themes of the book, as you said, is that things that have served us well evolutionarily often serve us poorly in capital markets. So if you look at something like loss aversion, you know, our, fear, our fear of dying or our fear of losing something, that served us very well over time. There used to be 11 or 12 different humanoid species, and we, you know, we, we wiped them all out. And the reason that we're still here and they're not is because, honestly, because we were a little more cowardly than they were we were more fearful we were more prone to pack up and move on we were more prone to run back in the in the cave and hide uh, than they were and their bravery got them you know got them killed ultimately and it led us to to procreate and to thrive but this same sort of fearful mindset that kept us safe on the savannas of africa keeps us you know keeps us all in cash through these roaring bull markets and doesn't lead us to compound our wealth in, in a way that keeps up with inflation. you know. Likewise, the brain itself hasn't had an upgrade in over 200,000 years. So when they look at the skulls of, of you know, our ancient ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago, they can hypothesize that their brains look just like ours. And so we've got these 200,000-year-old brains that are trying to cope with financial markets that are about 400 years old, developed financial markets are only about 400 years old. And the brain evolved to help us make quick, quick split second decisions. And the best investors have a profoundly long-term mindset. So there's a handful of ways in which the brain wants us to do one thing that's comfortable and evolutionarily adaptive, and it is exactly 180 degrees the opposite of what Wall Street demands of us to be successful one of those ideas
2: that i really enjoyed and and this is something that i uncovered back when i was doing a deep dive on buffett and munger is this idea of how we're often wired to act and yet markets reward inaction. tell me a little bit more about that
3: yeah so there's some really fascinating studies on how markets reward us doing nothing right you think about almost every part of your life I just got back from the gym. I'm trying to I'm trying to get, you know, fit like everyone else in early in the year. I'm still dedicated to my goals for the year. But, you know, I just got back from the gym. So if I want to get stronger, I lift more weights. If I want to get smarter, I read more books. If I want to get good at a job, I spend more time on that job. But when it comes to investing, we find again and again and again that the less you do, the better off you are. So again, it's it's the inverse of what you'd expect. And there's really great studies on this so first of all this has been studied in 19 different countries and in every country in which it's been studied the more some the more active someone is the more they mess with their account and check into their account the worse that they tend to do there's also a great study cited in jim o'shaughnessy's book what works on wall street where a large asset manager wanted to look at their retail accounts so that's like you know your everyday mom and pop accounts and they wanted to drill down and understand what were the behaviors of the best performing accounts in this large asset manager and they found that there were two things that these accounts had in common uh, and the two things were that they had either forgotten that they had an account or that they had died <laughs> and so you know they go in looking for the, you know evidence of skill and intellect and you know wit and trading systems and what they find is you know forgetfulness and death and so we see again and again and again that that our brains are wired to act but but markets reward doing nothing
2: such a fascinating mental model and a great example of, of what's completely counterintuitive because it's so easy to get caught up in the, the fear, or the need, or the desire to constantly check your account, to constantly pull things in and out, to react to the, the news that's always flashing and blaring and telling you about the latest crisis. I love the, the example of basically the best traders are the people who forgot that they had a trading account or the people who had died. That's, it's, it's incredible.
3: Yeah, you've got uh, research out of Taiwan that shows that one in 360 day traders are successful. Meanwhile, you've got the dead folks and the forgetful folks over here kicking butt. So, I mean, it's, it is hard to wrap your mind around that these people, you know, who are sitting in front of four screens with every chart in the world on them are getting outperformed by people who are just going about their lives. But yet the research is unequivocal. It's, it's very strong at this point.
2: You know, another one of the examples you had was this idea of how success begets failure and how we can, how success can cause us to become sloppy and undisciplined. Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: Yeah. So there's, there's interesting reasons, psychological and physiological, you know, in the book I talk about, I tried to take a deeper dive on the sociology, the physiology of, of some of these concepts. And so on the physiological reason why success begets failure, uh, it has to do with a rush of testosterone. So we find in the animal kingdom that animals, have, so say rams, who are fighting for lady rams, or wait, I guess they're sheep. Anyway, <laughs> rams who are fighting for partners, right? They're butting heads. They're, they're combating one another. When they win, they're flooded with testosterone. And so they take on a, you know, a bigger ram. They're feeling good. They're feeling powerful. They take on another ram. You know, beat that one flooded with more testosterone. Well, at some point, this rush of testosterone kind of goes to their head and they lose their critical thinking and decision making skills and they'll bite off more than they can chew. They'll, They'll take on an opponent that they have no business taking on because of this rush of testosterone. And we see that John Coates, the author of The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, which is another excellent book, he studied this in people who were traders on the floor of the stock exchanges in New York and London. And he found that uh, successful traders had this extreme rush uh, you know, of adrenaline and testosterone when they were on a tear. And this caused them to become strangers to their rules, to let go of their risk management protocols, to take bigger and bigger risks, just like a ram who's fighting for his, you know, a, a lady. And they took bigger and bigger risks that ultimately tended to end in their undoing. And so, you know, a big theme of the book is all around mental models, systems, processes, and following these plans rather than discretionary decision-making, sort of, you know, seat of your pants decision-making. Because in a very real sense, as you win, you become more convinced of your skill and you start to let go of what you know to be true. You start to let go of your rules.
2: And you had a great very simple heuristic for explaining this in the book, which is this idea that bad designs lead to bad decisions and lead to bad outcomes.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So getting that design right is is all important. and one of the things that we have to be careful to do is to create a system that you can't override. because you know I'm in my personal life, I'm a rules-based systematic decision maker with my investments. But I tell you, there are times when I want to override those rules. There's times when those rules look crazy to me. And I'll tell you, one of the most immediate example that comes to mind is when Trump won the election, love him or hate him, most people thought that this was going to bring a lot of uncertainty into the markets. and, And people no less auspicious than Paul Krugman, a Nobel Prize winning economist, were saying, you know, this is the end. This is the end of the U.S. market as we know it. Uh, And yet all my rules, all of my systems were saying, no, stay the course. You know, all my signals were saying, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, And I was able to do that. But man, everything in me was scared. You know, everything in me was scared that the market was going to crash. And that hasn't been the case. It's been it's been far from the case. But it's just one. I mean, you know, I think investors who've been at this a while could cite 100 instances of where. Where the design was telling you one thing and, and your head was telling you another thing, and you had to you had to stick with those rules. There's a great guy with the the best audited track record, investment track record of all time, a guy named Jim Simons, who's an award-winning mathematician and hedge fund jillionaire. <laughs> he says we set great rules and we follow them slavishly. And that's something that I've tried to tried to live by in, in my investing life and in my personal life. You know, there's just things you need to do every day. Spend you know 30 minutes on self development and reading reading something that's going to feed your mind and your spirit you know spend you know an hour at the gym do whatever and there are going to be days where that doesn't seem like the thing to do but i can promise you if you can stick with it over time you'll you'll come out ahead
2: and the piece of that that's sort of unsaid is this idea that it's really important to spend a lot of time and energy on the front end, investing in building those rules, in building those decision criteria and creating the effective designs that you then put in place. So many people get caught up in the reactivity of everyday life and never set aside a half a day or a few hours to really think through and do some homework and some research and say what should these rules be and how should i set them up because all the work is is the hard part of sitting down on the front end and actually creating the system after you've done that it's much easier to to follow
3: it so i mentioned something in the book that i've i've not gotten any takers on but i say that asset managers should work four days a year, like they should have access to their models and be able to make tweaks perhaps quarterly or less, and that they should spend the rest of their time uh, reading, basically reading and contemplating and, and considering opinions that diverge from their own. And, you know, nobody's taking me up on that. But we have this idea, you know, we have this idea that people need to be hammering away at a problem at all times of the night and day. And we've left very little time in modern life in this sort of cult of busyness that we've created for contemplation, for reflection, for creating mental models like you talked about that'll do all of the work for us going forward. If you can get it right that first time, you're going to be so well served by just simply following that playbook. And yet most of us, I think, in the corporate world are so trapped in the busyness of putting out every little fire that we don't have time to be contemplative. And I think that that's a real, dramatically to the detriment of people's well being and even to the detriment of, of the companies that we work for. So I'm 100% on board with what you're talking about.
2: So, how do people start to proactively create the time, the space to build these better designs and create better decision criteria?
3: Well, I think the first thing we have to do is be honest with ourselves about how we we spend our time. So one of the most consistent findings in psychology is that people just misapprehend and you know misreport their own behavior. So if you ask people what their average work week looks like and then you observe their average work week, most people say they work way more than they do. Uh, And most people say they have much less free time than they actually do. And if you ask people about stuff like, you know, their TV consumption and stuff, they're going to tend to report that, underreport that by about 50%. So I think the first thing we have to understand is you've got time for the things that you value. We have to stop making excuses about how busy we are. Because most of us, you know, unless you're working three jobs to just get by, most of us have more time than we give ourselves credit for. We as a civilization have more free time, more discretionary time than than anyone has ever had in human history. And uh, a recent study I found showed that the free time that we have gained has been replaced minute for minute with watching TV. So we have, you know, uh, an inordinately uh, increased amount of time relative to people who lived 50 and especially 100 years ago. And what have we done with that extra time? Well, we stare at our phones and we watch Netflix. And so I think the very first thing you have to do is take ownership of your time to take ownership of how busy you are or are not, and then allocate that time to stuff that has long term impact and not try and snow yourself as to how busy you really are.
2: I had a listener email me this week with a very similar story, how he used to feel trapped, how he used to feel like he never had any time. He was constantly putting out fires. And after listening to a couple of different episodes of of the podcast, he had this breakthrough and realized that he was spending hours a day on things like Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff and completely shifted the way he was allocating his time and realized that he had... Tons and tons of free time that he could spend on all kinds of things, and and start to really focus on improving and developing himself. And it's amazing. What, it's it's almost like once you get a little wedge in there and crack open a little bit of that contemplative time, it really starts to compound on itself and create more and more and more time and more ability to focus.
3: That well, that's right. And you you know, I consider myself. Ah, uh, probably like most people, a, a good steward of time. I, I consider myself to be a reasonably productive person, but then I got the new iPhone, and it gives you a you know a, a second by second reporting of how much time you're spending on your phone, and it's shocking to me. You know, I get that report every week, and I just think about the opportunity cost of the hours and hours. I spend, you know, staring at my phone or scrolling through Twitter or on Angry Birds or whatever. And it's like, you know, I could be doing a lot of good in the world in the time that I spent uh in the time that I waste on here. So I think when you when you have a really candid look at yourself, you'll you'll see that you have more opportunity than you think.
2: I'm gonna jump around a little bit because there's a, a number of different things I want to talk about from the book. One of the other interesting themes that you had was this idea of the physical side of of dealing with stress and and dealing with risk. Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: So I think most people think about stress as almost entirely a psychological phenomenon, and that's, that's partially true but there's so much more we could be doing from a physiological standpoint. So I have not always worked in finance. I was for a, a time and a season a clinical psychologist and that's, that's what my PhD is in. And one of the things that I found very consistently is that people would present to me with things like sort of garden variety anxiety. They would come in and talk about how they were being anxious, they were having panic attacks, things like this. And I would always start with things like diet, exercise and nutrition and often what i found is people were filling their bodies with insane amounts of you know caffeine they were sleeping poorly they were not exercising they were not you know surrounding themselves with the the people that cared about them and so i would say look before we do anything else you can get so much mileage out of you know just having two cups of coffee a day and going on a 30-minute walk. And nobody wants to hear that. Like nobody, everybody wants the magic pill. Everybody wants you to, to speak the magic words into existence that are gonna help them feel better. But the mind and the body work in a reciprocal fashion and, and feed off of one another. So yes, part of stress is mental, and, and part of it is physical. And it's such an underappreciated way of managing stress is to watch what you eat, to manage your sugar intake, to decrease your consumption of caffeine, and to get regular exercise. If everyone was doing those things, we would see a fraction of the cases of uh, you know stress-induced disorders that we do now. You know, there's also interesting, uh, one of probably my favorite study in the whole book, talks about people's willingness to take risk, who had to pee. <laughs> and so they found that people who had had a lot to drink and had to use the restroom, we're actually able to manage risk better than people who did not need to, to use the restroom. And they called it inhibitory spillover. So basically, you were, you know, you were already inhibiting yourself. You were already holding, holding it, right? You're already holding back. And this tendency to hold back physically generalized to a tendency to, to hold back psychologically and, and when taking financial risks. So I think we are just beginning to scratch the surface. Of the interplay between the mind and the body. And, you know, I was happy to discover that the secret to being a great investor was just always needing to pee. That's
2: a great example. And it's so fascinating. You know, the more I study performance and achievement, I see the same pattern again and again, which is that success is not about finding a magic bullet. There are no magic bullets. It's just about mastering the fundamentals and mastering the basics
3: that's exactly right yeah that's exactly right
1: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about
2: all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with
0: Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
2: when dealing with stress, a great model called the Rain Model. I'd love to hear more about that.
3: Yeah, so the Rain Model. I I think I cite it two different places in the book, and really, it's it's very intuitive, and it just talks about recognizing, accepting, investigating, and non identification. So recognizing first, like okay, I'm stressed, right, and then beyond that accepting it. You know, a lot of us jump straight to judgment. We're so programmed to jump straight into judgment. And this judgment that psychologists refer to as catastrophizing sets us down a negative spiral, you know, go, oh, you know, oh, uh, you know, I'm stressed. Oh, great. Here we go again. You know, I'm I'm freaking out. This is going to be terrible. You know, I'm not going to be able to go to work. No one's going to love me. (laughs) And we go down this, you know, this downward spiral that just gets worse and worse. So first we have to recognize it, right? Then we have to accept it. We, we just say, okay, it, it is what it is. It's this very Eastern philosophy sort of meditative practice of saying, look, okay, I'm stressed. It's not good or bad, it just is. Then we investigate the sources of that stress and see if there's anything, you know, we can do about it, right? We say, oh, you know, maybe I'm stressed because of this. Maybe I'm stressed because there's something unspoken between me and my partner and I should go have a conversation with them. You know, maybe I'm stressed because I've been sitting at this desk all day and I need to go stand up and stretch and, you know, get a drink or take a walk. Whatever it is, you investigate it. And then I think the coolest part of it is this non-identification piece, because I think so many times we conflate our emotional reality in a moment with our self-worth. We think, you know, I'm anxious, therefore I, I am intrinsically a basket case. And that's not the case. You know, emotional states are of necessity fleeting. And so this doesn't define you. You know, you're not defined by your anxiety. You're not defined by your depression, whatever emotion it is you're feeling. And so this is a really powerful model that I talk about at two different places in the book and try to give references so people can dig a little deeper if they're interested.
2: What would be a specific practice or application to apply the RAIN model for somebody who's listening who's currently dealing with a really stressful situation?
3: So the rain model is really about it's really a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's you know really uh, about recognizing and challenging beliefs, which is you know really all about what what co- what CBT is about. So we've got an activating event, you know, so whatever it is that's upsetting you. And you can say in that moment I'm gonna choose to respond to this differently. We're not gonna say, you know, the activating event made me do something. It's taking this power back. So this could be anything from a disappointment at work, a personal failure, you know, a heated argument with a loved one. You know, it could be a hundred things. Any kind of activating event that puts you in a funk, you can say, I can choose to be different. I can choose to approach this differently. And I don't have to feel or act any certain way as a consequence of what's just happened. And, you know, this is basically the the fundamental thinking of, I think, the greatest, call it a self-help book that was ever written, Man's Search for Meaning, is this reality that we are more than what happens to us and that in any place and at any time, we can choose our response to, to a stimulus. And I think it's a powerful way to move through the world that takes back ownership of your choices and your emotions, and says, "I'm not a victim of my circumstances." So, yeah, there's all there's all kinds of places yeah, I think you could apply this.
2: Tell me about in another part of the book, you you dig into this idea of self-esteem science and and how I think the phrase you use is you call it junk science. There's so many people that have been impacted by this. I want to hear a little bit about what your thoughts are on it.
3: Yeah, so I'm 39, I'll be 40 uh, late this year. And so I grew up very much in this this gold star generation when when research on self-esteem was right at the forefront of, of our best thinking psychologically. And we thought that the way to get people to make better choices, to live fuller lives was to just tell them that they were great, but you know, effectively to shower them with praise. And I, I see this in the way that I was raised by my parents. I see this in the way that I was taught at school sort of, you know, everyone gets a trophy, everyone gets a gold star. And I, I'm i forgetting the exact number, I believe it was 15,000 different studies that were examined in a meta-analysis. So that's a, you know, a, a study of all the studies on self-esteem. And what they found, first of all, was that most of the, the research was just junk science. Most of it was just pop psychology. And then of the of the non-junk science most of them showed that that self-esteem didn't didn't predict anything like it didn't predict how well people would do in school it didn't predict whether or not someone would you know live a life of crime it didn't it didn't predict anything much and they found that basically people have a strong bs meter like people know when they're being complimented for nothing and people know when they're being complimented for having genuinely achieved something. And so effectively what they found in the self-esteem research is there's no substitute for taking risks, doing hard things, and sort of sinking or swimming on your own merits. Because the only way that your self-esteem is truly built is by doing hard stuff. Like taking risks, doing hard stuff, and then yes, being complimented, being recognized. But recognizing people, you know, for for getting seventh place, and you know, no, knowing that they still get a ribbon, they they know they got seventh place. It doesn't work, and this isn't an an invitation to be cruel or or you know, to be dismissive of people who aren't on the medal stand, of course. But what it is is, I think, a again, a mental model for life. To say, you know, the only way that I'm going to really feel good about myself is taking risk, putting myself out there putting in the hours, doing the work, and then hoping that the rewards come. There's just no shortcut to feeling good about yourself.
2: And this ties into what we were talking about earlier, how the brain is hardwired to have things like loss aversion and the social risks of taking these things, whether it's starting a business, whether it's quitting your job, all these different things seem really, really dangerous and really, really risky. It might even be something as simple as making a sales call because of our evolutionary programming. And yet the reality is it's not life or death it's not as scary and dangerous as it often seems but our mind is is malfunctioning essentially
3: yeah that's exactly right and i can't i mean it's my own quote i can't quote it right now but there's a there's a paragraph in the book where i essentially say the biggest risk is not taking any risk you know the biggest risk is not that you start a business and and you know it fails which frankly will will likely happen if you start a business that's what happens to most small businesses is they fail but the bigger risk is still just spending 40 years in a job you hate you know i came across clients all the time who were not dating not loving not putting themselves out there because they were scared of getting hurt and in the process of of trying not to get hurt they were hurting themselves So a lot of times, because of the way that we're wired and because we're so risk averse and we're so loss averse, in our best efforts to protect ourselves from harm, we bring about the reality of the very harm that we are are trying to avoid. And that's such a powerful concept to internalize, to say, look, am I truly protecting myself or am I bringing about the absolute 100% 100% realization of the very thing I'm scared about, because I think that's that's often the case.
2: I think the way you described it in the book was the the quest for certainty and how dangerous it can be.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a place where I talk in the book about this quest for certainty, and I cite research that shows that humankind is more comforted by a negative certainty Than a potentially positive uncertainty. So I cite, I specifically give the example of adult children of alcoholics. You know, I talk about some of uh, the damage that's done by alcoholism, which is you know the leading cause of child abuse and one of the leading causes of death, uh, drunk driving in the U.S. Say, look, alcoholism does all this harm, and yet a slight majority of adult children of alcoholics go on to marry alcoholics. Now, you would think rationally that children of alcoholics knowing the pain brought on by substance abuse would run, you know, a a hundred miles away when they began to date someone with a drinking problem. And yet they tend to marry people with drinking problems because, you know, the devil that you know is, is less psychologically intrusive than the devil that you don't know. So that's, again, something we have to in investing and in life, just own that there there is uncertainty. You know, There is uncertainty. It's part of the game and we have to embrace it because the only other alternative is to just always be settling for the lowest common denominator in this thing that we're familiar with.
2: You make another really good point. And this is something that I think about a lot and also bring into conversations a lot, which is this idea that life is uncertain. People always want a sure thing. They're always trying to make sure that they're making the perfect decision they're making the right choice that whatever life choice they're making at this particular threshold is something that has to be absolutely perfect and the reality is you could walk across the street in 10 minutes and get killed that life is completely uncertain we just don't know and the great part about investing as a skill set and one of the other tools that taught me about this which is poker is that you start to realize that you can do everything right and things don't necessarily work out. And the flip side is you can do everything wrong and sometimes it still works out too. But either way, the world is an uncertain place and you have to be able to operate and think and make decisions in the context of uncertainty to do anything and to be happy and to achieve any, any real results in the world.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think once you own that the world is uncertain, and I think that, you know, death is one of the things that makes it so absolutely uncertain, just like you said, once you own that the world is uncertain, uh, once you've sort of mourned the loss of that certainty or that justness or the fairness in the world, because there's there's none to be had, unfortunately, uh, I think the best you can do is control the controllables. You know, you want to tilt probability in your favor. At every turn. So, you know, yes, you might get hit by a drunk driver one day, but you should never drive drunk, right? Like you can tilt probability in your favor with investing too, right? You can do these things, you can invest in a way that is, uh, you know, low turnover, low cost, many of the things that I talk about in the book. But yeah, even in spite of this, there are going to be times where doing the right thing is going to feel awfully bad. And in fact, in investing, sometimes your neighbor gets rich for doing the wrong thing. You know, your neighbor could throw all of her money in, in pot stocks and make a fortune owning, you know, one single pot stock and you have your diversified portfolio that's not doing quite as well. Well, you still did the right thing. And so taking this process, you know, trusting the process, taking this process-based approach to to living and to investing is I think a port an important way to think about it, controlling everything that's controllable and, and realizing that there's much that's out of your control and this is sort of the best you can do
2: that makes me think of even the broader category we were talking about earlier, the idea of evidence-based growth itself is rooted in the same mental model or the same framework In, in an uncertain world, we have to have process. We have to have evidence. We have to have something to use as a framework to understand reality. You know, people say, oh, well, you can, you have an evidence based approach, but scientific studies and psychology studies are proven wrong all the time. So I'm just going to go with whatever my gut tells me is right. But the reality is, you have to look at which models have the most predictive power, which models are the most effective. Just because a certain model is wrong some of the time, right? Because nothing is certain, doesn't necessarily mean that it's still not the right model and the right process to be using. And you really have to do a lot of the hard work of thinking on the front end and understanding understanding which models are you going to invest your time and energy in and which processes are you going to follow and execute
3: on? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I talk a little bit about choosing a good model in the book. And I think we're not helpless there. There are some things we can look to to determine whether or not a model is replicable or whether or not it's you know one to build your life around. And so the first thing is we want evidence in the data, right? Like we want, just like your podcast is all about, we want to be evidence-based. We want the data to support to support uh, what we're doing. But the second thing is we need to look, uh, we need to be philosophers too. We need to see that this makes some philosophical sense, that there's some common sense to it. You know, in the world of investing, there's a couple of, you know, funny indicators. We see that over time, you know, the, the S&P 500 moves in the S&P 500 have been correlated with the production of butter in Bangladesh at, at about 96%. Now, would you want to invest with someone who's going to, you know, uh, buy and sell based on Bangladeshi butter production? Well, no, because it's stupid. Like, you know, philosophically, it makes no sense, even though the, the data are there. So I think if you look for models for living that are both data driven and have an element of intuition to them, they kind of feel right philosophically or from a common sense standpoint, I think you won't be, you won't be led astray much.
2: You know, that reminds me of of another topic you talked about in the book, which is this idea of looking for truth in the wrong places. And in many ways, that's another example of one of these cognitive biases or mental models of how our brains misfire. But it also shows that we can easily get deceived about what kinds of data and information and evidence we should be supporting.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is the power of story. And, you know, story can be used, like most psychological concepts, to our benefit or to our detriment. But I cite research out of Princeton that looks at people who are listening to stories, you know, two people who are hooked up to an fMRI that's measuring their brain activity. So if you and I are sitting across from each other having a conversation about nothing in particular, our brain activity doesn't look all that similar. But the minute you start to tell me a story, our brains become actively synced. And so the power of story is very alluring. So this is one way that we can be misled or look for truth in all the wrong places is through a seductive story. So you know, I would tell people to be on guard against anyone that's trying to sell something via a story. It isn't necessarily bad, but just know that you know, you're, you're susceptible at this point. The other thing I think people like to be told is that, you know, the things will be easy. This is another way that we look for truth in all the wrong places is we, we want things to be easy. And you see this, I think at financial services more than anywhere else, it's like if something seems to be good to be true, then, you know, it, it probably is. You know, the truth about personal progress and uh, investment success is that they both require an element of of sacrifice, of discipline and hard work. And any formula that doesn't include those ingredients, I think, is, is one that's set up to fail and is likely profiting someone at your expense.
2: You also shared a really interesting example of the idea of the backfire effect and how sometimes information that we don't want to hear or disagree with can have really interesting consequences.
3: Yeah. So the backfire effect is pretty incredible. But I think the example i give in the book is of of parents who are failing to vaccinate their children so you know there's all these parents i think especially in southern california and other affluent parts of the of the country who have stopped vaccinating their kids because they fear that they'll that it contributes to autism spectrum disorders and so as a result, you're seeing diseases in this country that, you've, you know, you've never seen in you know, hundred years. You're seeing measles outbreaks in, in Orange County and things like this that are just wild and, and are totally unnecessary. And so the science, of course, contradicts this and says that you should, you know, you should vaccinate your children. But what happens is when people are given a strong message, when their beliefs are strongly rebuffed with facts, and then they survey these people on the strength of their belief after the fact, they find that in many cases they have doubled down on on their beliefs and so i think we have to be careful and this is why i quit facebook a couple of years ago because you know you're watching these people argue about politics and you know religion or you know whatever it is screaming at each other citing facts and understanding that nobody's minds are getting changed that way you know, people are really, really recalcitrant to front and center attacks on their deeply held beliefs. So I think the way that you change someone's mind is, is through relationships, through contact, and through, yeah, bringing people into exposure with different ways of being and different ways of thinking. So I think the best among us, the most, the most growth minded among us, will actively seek out opportunities to expose ourselves to new ideas and new people and new context because that's how you grow but but we are very very resistant to sort of fact only attacks on our beliefs they just don't work very much
2: it's a fascinating piece of research and, and so interesting so tell me a little bit more about this the the strategy that you've seen or or recommend for influencing people without a direct frontal assault using facts and data
3: so I think it's uh, the best thing you can do is bring people into contact with people who don't share their worldview. And so it's easy to hate or stigmatize or vilify an idea, You know, whether you're for abortion or against, uh, you know, against abortion, you know, whether you're you know, left or right leaning in your politics. It's easy for us to put labels on these, the people that espouse these beliefs and from a distance snipe at them and attack them. And we saw in the last election, this is so disheartening to me, but we we saw that over 60% of people who voted for Trump didn't know anyone who was voting for, for Clinton and vice versa. So whoever your preferred candidate was, most people said they did not have a single friend who was voting for their non-preferred candidate. So we have you know really quarantined ourselves geographically, religiously, politically, even the news media makes it possible for us to sort of self-select into our biases in a ways in a way that wasn't wasn't applicable, you know, 50 years ago. We couldn't, you know, everybody had sort of a a more or less centrist nightly news program. Now you've got every flavor of, of news that you want and people just tend to select the one that's most consistent with their own predispositions and biases. So I don't think there's any substitute for just meeting people who don't share your beliefs and understanding that they're good people too, they arrived at these positions for reasons that probably largely mirror the reasons that you arrived at your differing positions. They're trying the best they can, they love their families too, they're good people too. And so I think that that's how minds get changed. As, as people with different worldviews work shoulder to shoulder, and we can see that we're not the, the demons we've made each other out to be, I think that's how ideas change. And I think, you know, I, I hope the listeners to your program will be proactive about seeking out both opinions and, and especially people that they wouldn't normally, because I think that's the, the most powerful way to bring about change.
2: So for listeners who have, have listened to this conversation and want to concretely implement some of the themes and ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one action item or piece of homework that you would give them to start executing on some of these things?
3: So I would suggest, uh, you know, consistent with that last point, I would suggest that you go somewhere that makes you uncomfortable. Um you know, whether it be to a, a different r- religions religious service, whether it be to a political rally of of your non-preferred political stripes, whatever it is, even something as small as watching your non-preferred news channel for 30 minutes or an hour tonight instead of tuning into your your fav- your favorite strand of, of biased news, that would be my number one recommendation because you know the, the danger with reading a book like mine, I always get a little bit frustrated when people read something like The Behavioral Investor and they write to me and they go, oh, wow, you know, I read the part about egotism or emotionality and that was, that was totally my neighbor or that's totally my wife. And, I, you know, I have to write back and go, you know, the reason I wrote this is so you could be self-critical. <laughs> the reason I wrote this is so you could turn that bright light of introspection back on yourself. And so I think we have to seek first to get our own house in order. And I think a way to do that is, you know, both by reading a book like this, which I hope will challenge your assumptions, but even more than that, exposing yourself to new situations and just being cognizant of your responses.
2: And for listeners who want to find the book, find you, find your work online, what's the best place for them to do that?
3: Yeah. So the book is The Behavioral Investor. It's available on Amazon and anywhere else you buy books. I'm very active on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD, and on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. And I also have my own podcast called Standard Deviations. So any of those will be just great.
2: Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming back on the show, for sharing all this wisdom and digging into these topics. Some really, really interesting insights.
3: Thank you for sharing your platform.
2: Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.